Hey everybody, welcome back to Neurological. This is episode two, which is going to be kind of a introduction to the criminal justice system. I'm here with my partner in crime and psychology, Tiana. Happy Tuesday, everybody. And uh, Alex, you neglected the fact that we also have uh, Penella here as our partner in crime and psychology. Oh, yes. <laughs> So today you said you want to do more of an education, educational related post um, about the criminal justice system. So I guess where do we start with something so seemingly complex? Yeah, so it is a, a complex system and any really any system um, is complex in nature, but um, this one is kind of misunderstood partly because of the way that even though it's widely distributed in terms of um, on the news and through movies, um, through any other kind of media like video games, um, it's not often portrayed accurately. So even though it's widespread, um, people may not understand the real workings and then they get confused when they actually learn about the real stuff. Um, so I guess to start, we can kind of just walk through like the normal process. Um, and I know someone like you that doesn't have as much experience with it um, can kind of ask questions along the way to kind of guide us. Yeah, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing. <laughs> um, well, first, I guess I have a question. Bringing in the media, is there a particular uh, show, TV series, movie, book even that you say or that you would say captures the criminal justice system more accurately than not um it's hard to say tv show uh, just because really when you look at tv shows they're there for entertainment um so law and order criminal minds um Pretty much any of those, they're there. Yes, they f will kind of highlight some things, um, but they're not going to be entirely accurate because they're they're meant to get people to watch and get viewers. And they're fake stories. Um, sometimes they're based on real things. But as far as even like newscasts and stuff or shows like Cops, um, Live PD, um, again, they're there for entertainment. Um, so they're kind of, even if they portray real stuff, they edit it down and it might not be completely true. Um, obviously with live PD and cops, it's real footage, but I still think there's some kind of geared towards entertainment. So I would say not really for any TV shows. Again, there might be some parts that are accurate, but not really. Um, books, uh... <laughs> Maybe like intro to criminal justice for <laughs> your classes. Um, I think, you know, those kinds of books, textbooks do a little bit better job. Um, but as someone who took classes in it, um, I think even books don't, no pun intended, but do it justice. Um, I think really the firsthand experience is when you really get to learn it. So as a juror, um, you get to actually witness the criminal justice system. Or, unfortunately, if you're a victim, or um, if you have a family member who's the offender, 
um, something like that where you actually see this stuff firsthand. I think that would be the most accurate. Um, but to answer your question, other than really um, classes on it, um, I don't really see a lot of the media portraying it um, 100%. Hmm. All right, so walk us through how how a case would begin and pursue through the criminal justice system, generally speaking. Um, so beginning would be uh, obviously like a crime is committed. Um, somebody does something that's against the law. Um, now that varies from state to state, varies from even like country to country. It can vary within the state, but um, someone commits a crime and it has to be reported. Um, and the report can either be someone witnesses it and calls it in, um, someone knows about it after the fact and then goes in and reports it to law enforcement, or um, law enforcement actually witnesses it happen. And then there's an arrest, uh, an immediate arrest made. And that an example of that would be maybe like a DUI. Um, so the police officer is sitting on the side of the road and they see someone kind of swerving um, on the road and then they pull them over. So that would be kind of like the reporting initial phase. But then you could also have a person who um, was a victim of uh, sexual assault years ago and then they come in and report it to police now. Um, so that's kind of where it would start. Well, and there's different like statutes on different crimes, right? Yes. So like some you can report many, many years after it happened, some it's not so long after. Yeah, so a lot, uh, there's, um, for those listening, um, so since we're in Pennsylvania, um, some crimes have a statute of only two years. Um, those are tend to be the, we'll say the less uh, violent ones, the less serious ones, um, but they tend to only be like two years or so. Um, things like sexual assault, um, rape, um, and then murder, those ones all have longer statutes, um, multiple years, and then homicide, actually, there's no statute of limitation in Pennsylvania. So you could report a, uh, a homicide forever. Like, you could report it years and years later. There's no limit on that. Do you know how they come up with those different statutes? I don't know how they come up with them. Um, it's how I just described them to you, maybe it, it seems like, you know, the ones that they consider more serious, um, to be longer statutes, but I really don't think it's fair to do, um, un unlimited on homicide, but then things like child sexual assault or, um, child sexual abuse or really any kind of abuse, um, there's a limit on it. So a child who knows that something happened to them when they were eight, um, when they're, you know, 60, if it comes to them, they can't report it. Or they could report it, but it nothing can be done criminally about it. Hmm. But no, I don't know how, how they actually decide it. Um, it's all law-based, so it's all created by, like, policymakers and stuff. So, say there's a crime that happens, and either you report it yourself, or, like, you use the example with the police officer, um, who kind of catches you in the act, so to speak, um, 
what happens next? Like speaking from your experiences as a victim advocate, what would what would you tell the the people that you worked with as the next step in the process? So post reporting is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. What's the next step for them or what's the next step for the process? <laughs> um I guess the the process. Um, so I think pointing that what I just said um, is interesting that it wouldn't be the same answer. Mm -hmm. um, you'd think that whatever happens in terms of the case, that's what happens for the victim. But I would say for the next part of the process, um, if there's an arrest made, um, then the person who's accused of the crime is then um, taken to like a, a district court and they're what's called arraigned, um, which is they're just told what their charge is and then bail is set. Um, so bail determines if the person is going to stay in jail um, or is going to be released um, and then how much money they would owe if they don't show up to their next court hearing. Um, if they actually, there's no money involved, um, which is when it's called... Um, Released on, released on their own recognizance, um, ROR is the short term. So that literally just means, hey, you know you have to show up. Okay, we agreed to that. There's no money involved. Um, but then other times people have to post bail is what you hear. Um, so that's determined all at that district court level. And then pending if they're released or if they're taken to the jail, um, so they might be they're unable to post bail, so then they're taken to jail. Um, or they may have committed a crime where there is no bail allowed uh, to be set, which would be something like homicide um, in Pennsylvania. There's no bail. Uh, so they're held with without bail, meaning they can't uh, leave the prison or leave the jail. Um, so that would be the really the next step, um, is that district court level. And then after that, um, they're given... What, in Pennsylvania, it's called a preliminary hearing. Um, in other states, it's an evidentiary hearing, which they're just trying to determine if, so far, the case has enough evidence that it really could be heard at a higher court level. Um, so some people call it a probable cause hearing um, to see if what was the person was arrested on um, is enough. It doesn't have to be, like at a trial where it would be beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, it's a very low standard compared to that. But that would be the next step after the arraignment would be the preliminary hearing. Um, some things that could happen at that would be they can call witnesses. Um, they may not call anybody and just have the police officer testify. Uh, they may just present evidence uh, like written statements and things. Um, it's kind of up to whoever's presenting the case. And is it at that point that you might see like some um, victim impact statements too? No. So those are only for sentencing. Mm. So that's if the person is convicted. Um, the victim may still talk at the preliminary hearing, but it's more so just to verify information that was reported to the police. Get the facts kind of thing. Yeah. It's not they're not allowed to talk about how this has impacted them. Um, they're not allowed to talk about 
all the things that they've had to do because of this crime happening. It's really just, you know, what happened, where, where, what, all those questions. Now, you mentioned charges, and you guys, Alex catches me on this all the time. That language, that verbiage, press charges. I'm going to press charges. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about <laughs> that. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe I, I, I could be wrong on this, but from my experience, from my education, um, from my job experience, you cannot press charges against someone in terms of like what they say in law and order. They say, you know, would you like to press charges against him or something like that? Um, you as a private citizen, you can file a criminal complaint against somebody, but if the police ask you, would you like to press charges or not? That's not really an accurate question. What they should be asking you in a roundabout way is, are you going to cooperate with the investigation? Um, are you willing to testify? Are you willing to do all this stuff that's involved in the criminal justice system? Because really, and I know this for sure in Pennsylvania, but when the district attorney has the case, it's really them pushing the case forward at this point. You really, you know, you can show up as the victim um, or as a witness, or you, you don't. Um, but really the case is going forward at that point. Um, they want the case to go forward. Now where you see, you know, it seems like the charges are dropped, that is when they feel like they don't have enough evidence or the, the witness or the victim doesn't want to testify uh, for various reasons. So the whole pressing charges thing would be, I think a better question would be, you know, do you want to cooperate with the case? Do you want to testify? All that kind of stuff. Um, I think you bring this up because it's a lot of the times you hear it with maybe like assaults and like physical assaults like someone will punch someone and they'll say well it's no big deal I won't press charges but really once the police are called and they show up and there's a visible injury they're likely going to charge the other person whether you want them to or not um now police have discretion and can say you know maybe we'll just charged with a lower offense. But as far as intervening, they're probably going to do something. So when I was doing my courthouse facility dog research, a lot of the language that I used was uh, pursuing the criminal justice system. So do you think, as opposed to saying press charges, saying, you know, I'm going to pursue the criminal justice system, or would you like to pursue the criminal justice system? Yeah, I think that's a a way better way to put it. Um, you you hear that language with um, like crimes that involve uh, sexual assault or something. You say, do you want to report that um, to police? And a lot of places now, like the idea was before that people felt like they had to report that, um, or if they didn't report it, it wasn't like legitimate. But now they you know, offer people alternatives, they can report it, especially if it happens on a college campus, they can report it to their college, um, but not necessarily the police. Okay, so there's, there's a difference between juvenile versus adult criminal justices, justices. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, you know, briefly, how would you describe those differences that exist? So that's going to, a lot of this conversation, I feel like I could just follow up with, that will vary on state to state. Um, but again, speaking from Pennsylvania, so they're, they separate it. Um, adults from what are juveniles, and juveniles is anyone under the age of 18 when they committed the crime. And I put that when they committed the crime because people can be involved in the juvenile justice system until they're 21, actually, in Pennsylvania. But they had to have committed the crime before the age of 21. Um, or before the age of 18, I'm sorry. And can't they also be charged as adults, as minors, or no? Yes. Okay. Commit a crime, but then be charged as an adult, is what you see. So someone that's 15 that commits homicide, they may um, be automatically charged as an adult in Pennsylvania. Um, so they would actually then be involved in the adult justice system, not the juvenile justice system. You say between the two systems, there's greater opportunities for, I guess, recovery of juvenile offenders versus adult? Or do you think that the system is set up in such ways that, you know, both populations don't always fare out the best? Um, I think that both systemically and individually, the juvenile justice system is set up in more of a rehabilitative way um, or geared towards let's, let's help this person do better in the future. And I think with, so I said, said at a system level and individual. So system level would be the people involved, the professionals, um, the judges, the design of the system, like how a case goes through. There's way more opportunities for diversion, which would be getting people out of that system or getting them to a lesser involvement in the system. Um, so that's how the system is set up. And then uh, individually, they're kids. Um, they're mostly kids under the age of 18. So in general, in terms of their brains and stuff, so tying this to psychology a little bit, but um, they have more capacity to kind of be open to those changes and things. Um, their brain's still developing, so they would probably be more um, receptive to interventions and they may be more likely to change their behaviors for the future. Yeah, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but I'm just thinking about just the, the neuroplasticity of brains in general, but the, the young brain. So do you know in the juvenile justice system if there are greater opportunities for like counseling and programs oriented around recovery, mental health? There's uh, not necessarily like specific ones, but they definitely, there's more community-based interventions or community-based programs set up for the juvenile justice system. Um, that's almost like a given. It's almost almo always part of their um, sentence, we'll, we'll call it, but it, in the juvenile justice system, they don't call it a sentence, they call it a disposition. So even the language is different. So you, as a juvenile, you don't get convicted of a crime. 
you get adjudicated delinquent. So it's different terminology. They try to separate the terminology from the adult system so that um, there's less stigma associated with it, there's less um, negativity in general around it, um, and showing that there's more room for opportunities. But they definitely have more programs. And from my experience as a juvenile probation officer, professional but also intern they that was all it was just like a given like you said at the end of the case basically okay what programs are we going to put this juvenile in like you said counseling is one of them but also like community service hours they'll have them do um stuff that's involved in their school so there's way more uh programming in place that will hopefully steer them outside of the system mm-hmm which is totally great, very necessary, and it's also unfortunate um, how much, I guess you can say, research, funding, all those things that go into making um, intervention prevention programs for adults, and I would anticipate that that probably decreases with age. So you look at, uh, like, geriatric population, and there's, I'm sure, much less than even people who are in their 30s, 40s. Like aging out um, in prison populations. So if you listen to really any of these true crime podcasts or you listen or you watch any kind of crime shows, they'll talk about how the risk of someone doing something again goes down the older the person gets. Um, And older they get, meaning after they're already an adult. Um... So someone that's 70 is highly unlikely to commit a crime again compared to someone that's 50. Um, So you hear people aging out of the system, meaning that it's usually when there's, unfortunately, it's when there's a lot of medical problems too with the person. It's just seen as more uh, cost-effective, we'll say, sad to say, but cost-effective and they deem them not a risk. So they'll just say, okay, you've aged out of the system you could be paroled now or you could be released Hmm. um so they don't even i mean that's their version of the program basically Mm -hmm. like instead of actually offering them something they just say you know you've kind of gotten too old for this yeah so it's not rehabilitative in any nature it's more so you've gotten too old to commit (laughs) the crimes that got you in here yeah Yeah, that's not to say it still can't happen you know, they can't commit those crimes, but I guess statistically speaking, just, it, there's so much less of a risk. Right. And, I mean, there's tons of reasons, like, why that would be. Um, the medical, you know, concerns being one of them. But also, like, physical limitations, um, the impulsivity um, that goes down. So all that kind of stuff that before was leading to them committing crimes now has kind of gotten away Mm -hmm. so for our last little piece here this is something that's uh kind of near and dear to my heart again with with the research i've done on courthouse facility dogs um which maybe in a future episode we'll we'll share something exciting about that um but just that research that i've done i've seen just how much pursuing the criminal justice system can really be a secondary trauma for a lot of um, survivors or victims of crime. So is there 
a forgotten piece in the system for victims, survivors, thrivers, whatever you prefer to call them? Um, I like those terms, but uh, the forgotten piece is really that just because the case is over in the system doesn't mean the case is over for the victim. Mm. Um, I think that's the forgotten piece, is that people see that there's an end to the case, they'll call it. Um, a closure, they'll say, or, you know, okay, now you can go back to the way things were before, when they'll, things never will be the way that they were before, because just like if something good happened to the person, their life could be different, but something unfortunately bad has happened to them. And just because the case is over, um, doesn't mean that now they can move on with their life, um, that they feel any better than they did 10 minutes before the case was over. Because um, unfortunately, some of the stuff will never be returned to them. Mm -hmm. As you're saying that, I think about, did you get a chance to watch Athlete A yet on Netflix? No, the, I didn't The gymnast watch that documentary. One. That's what I think about is, spoiler alert, just that documentary and seeing how much those victims, those survivors, even past the victim impact statements. I mean, they they still display this sense of empowerment, but you continue to hear about the the challenges and changes, necessary changes, I think, that are happening in the gymnastics industry um, to really overcome and challenge some of the systemic issues that were happening in there. So it's still part of their lived experiences every single day, even though I, I think it's been case closed. I could be wrong on that. Don't quote me. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, one of the points you just mentioned was after the, after the case, regardless of the outcome, some people will try to kind of make a meaning out of what has happened, um, try to do, like, uh, make some kind of change in the way that things run uh, based on their experiences. Even if they had a decent experience, they may still advocate for better reporting of the crime, um, better treatment of uh, victims in those types of cases, uh, better restorative practices after the fact. Um, or just changes in terms of, so with that, with, you know, it's a culture. Um, so trying to change that culture, it's, you know, not even part of the system, but um, change that culture based on their experiences with this. And that's where you see some victims and witnesses and people that are involved in the cases will, you know, do advocacy work or will write a book or will, you know, participate in a documentary or a film. Um, and that's not to say that people that don't do those things are not doing everything that they can or that um, they should, um, because really no one can say what you should do after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just about to say, everyone shows resilience in a different kind of way. Um, those are definitely classic examples of just people's ability to bounce back after traumatic experiences. But that does look different for every single person. So, wrapping up, you want to try and do this recap of things that you're reading, watching, watching, listening to, uh, trainings that you're attending, 
So what's been going on in the last two weeks? Um, so reading, unfortunately, still the same book. Um, and I say unfortunately not because it's a bad book, but because I haven't made any progress since the last time we did this podcast. Because you're reading hundreds of pages of journal articles Right, yeah. School. I'm not slacking by any means in terms of reading. Like, it's not like I'm just sitting and staring at a blank wall. That would be so nice. <laughs> um, it's definitely, I'm just reading a lot of other stuff. So that book, still reading that, um, still will be reading that. Don't quote me on when that will be done, though. Um, listening to... Um, still consistently listening to um, Women in Crime, their podcast, every single uh, time that they release an episode, just because I'm already caught up. Um, so it's very easy to stay caught up. Um, I still listen to... Um, if I want the true crime with a little mix of comedy in there to kind of lighten the mood and stuff... Um, I do listen to Small Town Murder, um, two very funny comedians, um, who present true crime cases, but they do it without offending the victim or the victim's families. Um, um, trainings, I'm still doing a bi-weekly, uh, training for, uh, trauma awareness. So I do that one. Um, it's kind of just a general, um view of trauma, but it's very in-depth. Um, I think it's over 30 classes. It's like 30 classes or so total. Um, so I'm almost done, but that's the training I've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, later this month, I... Well, hopefully I'll have a podcast episode before then, but <laughs> um, I'll be attending a training on uh, substance abuse and um, they relate that to, actually, I think this year's topic is resilience. So, hmm. so yeah, hmm. that's what I'm listening to, reading. Oh, I do plan on watching on Netflix. Um, they just released a docu-film, uh, it's not really a series, on the Chris Watts case. Um, and it... Sounds like you got a busy couple weeks ahead of you. No, that's a light. That's a light. <laughs> a light agenda. Yeah. All right. Well, anything else our viewers should know about criminal justice system 101 in a quick 30 minutes? Um, I don't think I want to squeeze anything else in this episode. <laughs> but um, I did want to mention there will be a small episode or um, mini episode on uh, the recent partnership that I posted about um, with Turning Leaf, uh, the Turning Leaf Project. So if you haven't checked that out yet, the link will be, I'll include it in the notes for this episode, um, but it's pretty cool. That program works with um, people who are trying to re-enter society after being incarcerated. Um, so definitely for people listening to this, uh, might be something you're interested in. Um, Definitely aligns with that rehabilitative, rehabilitative approach, right. getting people set up with jobs, skills, training. So go check out that merch and support them. Yeah, the merch will have my name on it, but it also will, or the podcast name on it, but it will also have their information on it. Um, yeah, I don't think anybody wants a shirt with just Alex, right. Alex Roar written on it. Maybe. No, I do, but... <laughs>
remember, Neurological is a true crime podcast to be psyched about. <laughs>